Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Outrageous Joy. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. For those of you who feel overworked and underpaid by your current employer, or maybe you're looking for a career change, or you're just simply looking for work, I know of a fantastic company that you're going to be interested in applying for a a position at. Uh, They're they're hiring new employees right now, actually. Um, Here's just a few reasons why you'll want to uh, look into this great opportunity and freshen up your resume and submit it for consideration. Uh, they, they have approximately 21,000 employees, and this company is a world leader in electricity, natural gas, and communication. So that, that's good because they're diversified. They, they've been named America's most innovative company by Fortune magazine for six consecutive years. Fortune's also named this corporation as one of its 100 best companies to work for in America. Last year, their total earnings were $111 billion. Their stock price is valued at just over $90 per share, and they've been hailed as a pioneer in employee pensions, benefits, and management. I can see how eager you are to look at this great vocational opportunity here. Um, if you're interested in making a career change, all you need to do is update your resume and then go to the website www.enron.com and you can upload it there. Now, if you don't remember Enron, I'll refresh your memory. Have you ever heard of the cliche, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is? Well, that was the case in late 2001. This too-good-to-be-true company was forced to file for bankruptcy after the uncovering of a widespread accounting scandal. In layman's terms, I mean, it was very complex what happened, but in layman's terms, if I was to boil it down, uh, this, during their meteoric rise throughout the 1990s, Enron cooked the books by inflating their profits while disguising their losses off the books. These fraudulent accounting practices allowed Enron to rise quickly like a house of cards, but when they were exposed, they fell like a house of cards. In fact, the corruption was so widespread, it also took down their accounting firm, Arthur Anderson, which was one of the largest accounting firms in the country as well. To this day, Enron's bankruptcy is still considered one of the largest in U.S. history. Among the many tragedies, and there were many stories that came out over the next year after 2001 when they filed for bankruptcy, and it was, uh, for those of you that were around back then, it was on the news every day. But one of the many tragedies that came out in the stories that were published in the news was Uh, the thousands of employees who lost their jobs, their health care benefits, and billions of dollars 
in 401k retirement accounts. Overnight, just evaporated. They had spent years working for and investing in a company only to see everything they had worked for vanish before their very eyes. Because it was too good to be true. It wasn't real. Enron executives had been lying to their employees for years about the financial health of the company and even encouraged and incentivized buying Enron stock. And in the end, the employees were left holding the bag, as they say. False teachers do the same thing with false gospels. They do with the gospel what Enron did with their accounting books. They try to get you and I to believe in a gospel that sounds so good, we want it to be true. But in the end, it will cost us more than our retirement savings if we buy into it. It can cost us our souls. Like most churches in the New Testament, false teachers were trying to trick the Philippians into believing a false gospel, but the Apostle Paul was determined as their spiritual father to protect them from this. And that's what he's talking about today in Philippians chapter 3. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Philippians chapter 3. We're continuing our series in the book of Philippians called Outrageous Joy. And as you turn there, I'll just refresh your memory, or for those of you that have been gone for a while or visiting today, Uh, Just a little bit of background on the book of Philippians. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul around 61 to 62 AD while he was under house arrest in Rome for preaching the gospel. Philippians is primarily a warm thank you letter for the financial support that the church had sent him while he was planting churches abroad. However, just like every other letter the Apostle wrote, this one also includes some helpful instructions to address some of the weaknesses and struggles that they were dealing with. You see, although the Philippians were a generous church, they had that going for them, we've been learning as we work our way through this letter that they also lacked joy, they were prideful, and they had unresolved conflict and disunity. Our, our theme verse for this series has been Philippians 4.4. 4. If you haven't done so already, I want to encourage you to underline it in your Bible or highlight it or maybe make a mark just to circle it somehow. So it, it is the key verse in my Bible. Uh, I've got written down key verse, chapter 4, verse 4, near the heading of the book. This is where Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. The apostle tells us and the Philippians throughout this letter in his typical no-holds-barred style that he has that Christ followers should rejoice in the Lord when the world, our circumstances, and every ounce of our being tells us not to. When the last thing we feel like doing is rejoicing. Paul says, rejoice. Although this requirement of rejoicing may sound outrageous, it is possible through a growing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, our big idea for today is this. 
outrageous joy can only be found by embracing the true gospel. Outrageous joy can only be found by embracing the true gospel. As we, as we turn the page to chapter 3 in this letter, we're going to discover the church in Philippi was being attacked by false teachers. Uh, this is of great concern to the Apostle Paul because he does not want to see this church that he loves invest themselves in a false gospel that will cost them their soul. You might remember from previous messages that false teachers are agents of the adversary who add to, subtract from, or make substitutions in the true gospel. Nearly every book in the New Testament contains warnings about false teachers, and nearly every century of church history documents their existence. This means that false teachers are in every generation, every denomination, and in every community. They are craftier than you might think, which makes them harder to detect than you would expect. And so with every Bible out and every heart open, let's look at Philippians chapter 3 together, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for those dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate, mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Here's the first truth on your outline. Number one, that I think Paul wants us to take away from this passage about the gospel, and that is there are enemies of the gospel who want to steal your joy. There are enemies of the gospel who want to steal your joy. I continue to be amazed at the number of Christians who think every preacher who opens up a Bible or every church that hangs out a shingle in the name of Jesus is legit. The scriptures in church history prove otherwise. The most effective weapon the adversary and false teachers have is the ability to convince you that they don't exist. This is why I wrote point number one the way I did as I wrestled with the text. And What's Paul saying? What's he saying? What's he getting at? What's the takeaway? And finally it came to me as I was wrestling and praying with it. Ah, he's trying to tell them these guys are trying to come in and steal their joy. He's trying to basically pull the covers off and go, there they are. Watch out for them. And so, look at verse 1 with me. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Sounds very similar to our theme verse, does it not? In chapter 4, verse 4. This is one of our key words again. Rejoice. The noun joy and the verbal imperative, rejoice, occur at least 13 times in this book. That's why, because of its repetition, it is the key theme and key word and Chapter 4, verse 4 is the key verse. The apostles' command, though, to rejoice, notice, 
in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. That is very important to not miss. Because it's not only a reminder of where the focus of our joy should be, but also where the supernatural power to be joyful comes from. It comes from the Lord. We need the Lord to help us be joyful. Next, he says to write the same things to you as of no trouble to me. Although this phrase may seem odd here, commentator Walter Hansen explains that Paul was actually using a common expression in letters from his day. He, in essence, is saying this, because we're friends, I do not hesitate to tell you what I'm about to tell you. In fact, I don't hesitate to tell you to rejoice again, and I'm going to speak the truth in love in the next few verses. That's what literally he's saying in the, in the original text. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It means um, I don't hesitate because I'm not bothered to say what I'm about to say. This is important. Because next he says, verse 2, look out. In fact, look out or beware, depending on which Bible translation you have. He says it three times. Look out. Look out. Like you're getting, you know, somebody getting ready to jump in front of a bus or something. Look out. You, it's a word of warning. Beware. For the dogs, the evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is is referring to, he's referencing a group of rival false teachers called the Judaizers. By labeling them as dogs, the apostle is lobbing an insult hand grenade at them that's pretty significant. You see, because in the first century, dogs were not, uh, they were not the adorable, lovable, domesticated pets that you and I love to have in our homes. Uh, dogs back then were, for the most part, despised, filthy strays who ate corpses, trash, and even their own vomit. And so, who are these Judaizers that Paul calls dogs? Well, they were a group of possibly converted Jews who were dyed in the wool, Jewish, grown up in the Old Testament law system, but they wanted to believe that Jesus had died on the cross and rose again for their sins. However, they did not believe Jesus' death alone was sufficient for them to be saved. And so for this reason they were going around insisting their followers keep certain Jewish laws found in the Old Testament in order to be saved. These additions to the gospel caused them to spread a type of legalism that undermined Paul's message of salvation by repentance and faith alone in Christ alone. So in essence, they were, they were spreading a gospel that was, yeah, you need Jesus plus, you need to also follow all these Old Testament laws as well. And then you'll be okay with God. One of the laws that they were most passionate about was circumcision. 
Judaizers believed that Jesus plus circumcision was necessary for salvation. And so because of this, one of the questions that the Philippians were struggling with is, is Jesus Christ enough for me to be saved? Or do I need something else? Because these Judaizers, Paul, they're telling me I also have to be circumcised and I still need to follow the Old Testament law. And so Paul's answer to that question is a resounding, yes, Jesus is enough. He is enough. In order to encourage and instruct the Philippians on this issue, the apostle mentions a few proofs of conversion in verse 3. Uh, and you'll notice that he begins the verse with the plural pronoun, we. I think this is a way of saying, we know we are saved because we do the following, meaning Paul and the Philippians. And so here's letters A, B, and C. He gives some proofs of conversion. How do you know? These aren't the only ones, but these are at least three proofs that Paul gives for someone who might be struggling with whether they are born again or not, or to help you discern whether a loved one is born again, or your child, or your spouse, or your friend. And so Paul says, we are the circumcision, meaning true believers do this, letter A. They give Jesus authentic worship and service. They give Jesus authentic worship and service. He says in verse 3, we worship by the Spirit of God. Some translations render the original text here. Instead of worship, uh, they say we serve by the Spirit of God. Either would be appropriate, but the point here is that those who have been genuinely born again into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's called regeneration by theologians, those who have experienced that, have the indwelling Holy Spirit residing in their hearts. And because the Spirit desires to glorify the Father and the Son, genuine believers long to, they look forward to, and love to worship the Lord. Therefore, they don't have to be persuaded to make worship a priority in their schedule. They don't have to be forced to go to church or shamed for not going because they already want to be there. Because the Spirit indwelling in their hearts creates the desire. Thus, the inverse is also true. If there is no desire, it certainly raises the concern, is the Spirit in there? And according to Romans chapter 8 and several other passages in the New Testament, if there is no spirit indwelling in the heart, then there is no Jesus. Next, letter B, Paul says, we also give Jesus glory for everything. We glory in Christ Jesus. A true, maturing believer never says things like, I'm so proud of myself. Or, look what I did. Or, I'm a pretty good person. Because they understand what Jesus said in John 15, 5. Which is, apart from me, you can do nothing. Thus, if, if, if a, a true maturing believer does anything praiseworthy, 
They know it's because Jesus helped them do it. And therefore, they give him glory. So, true believers give Jesus authentic worship and service. They, they give him glory for everything. And also, true believers place no confidence in human effort. Let her see. They place no confidence in human effort. Paul uses a very interesting phrase that he doesn't use anywhere else in his writings. He only uses it here. He says, we put no confidence in the flesh. To put confidence in the flesh is, and I want to encourage you to maybe write this down so that you can remember what this means, the phrase means. To put confidence in the flesh is to pridefully think We can accomplish spiritual objectives without the Lord's help. It's to pridefully think we can accomplish spiritual objectives without the Lord's help. So, for example, unbelievers, they place confidence in their their flesh by um, when they try to live out the Christian life or try to earn their salvation without knowing Jesus and having the indwelling spirit. Uh, believers put confidence in the flesh by trying to live out the Christian life with their own strength instead of under the power of the Holy Spirit through a growing relationship with the Lord. So, so for, for unbelievers, they typically try to earn their salvation or be good enough. That's how they put confidence in the flesh. And for, for believers, it's usually trying to pull off the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit, without a growing relationship with the Lord. Now, I've shared in previous messages that performance gospels like the one the Judaizers were spreading is just one of a few false gospels that have attacked the Lord's church since its inception. I haven't seen much of the performance gospel in this part of the country. I have seen it in a couple other parts uh, where I have served at other churches, but... um, The one false gospel that I am seeing more of as time passes, as I get older, and I'm seeing it all over the country, it's what I call the permissive gospel. It's so popular because it's so easy to preach. In essence, it it shares all the positive things about knowing Jesus without mentioning any of the negatives like repentance and giving up sin and pursuing holiness. If those are negatives, I don't think they are. But The permissive gospel waters down and and dilutes the gospel to make it more palatable in order to get more decisions so that then you can count numbers and call it fruitfulness and God's blessing. The permissive gospel takes God's grace to an unbiblical extreme by inviting the guilty sinner to receive Christ's forgiveness without calling them to repent of the sin they need to be forgiven for or saved from. And so it's, a, it's in essence a hyper-grace theology that rejects any call to discipleship. So, so the permissive gospel, another way I would phrase it, says you can have Jesus 
And you can keep living your life the way you want. You don't have to change. You don't have to give up your sin. You can continue to be a self-centered person and not have to follow the Lord. But you can be forgiven and have eternal life. So you see how it's that mixing of the goody stuff that we want, but we leave out the things we don't want to have to give the Lord. That is not the gospel that is preached in the scriptures. It is not the gospel that Jesus preached. In fact, what's interesting is in Mark chapter 1, I think it's in Mark 1 verse 15, when Jesus starts his, his ministry, first sermon he's preaching, he says, repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom of God is near. It just blows my mind that preachers will take something that Jesus said and go, oh, we, don't, we don't mention that. That's just not meant. I don't bring that up. That's just too harsh. We're just going to tell them the other stuff. Grace and mercy and love. But you can just keep on living the way you want to live. So, so here's what the other thing. The permissive gospel calls obedience to God's word legalism. And in doing so, they commit heresy because obedience in discipleship is not legalism. It's what the Lord expects. It's what the Lord deserves from us. Ironically, the permissive gospel actually cheapens grace instead of appreciating it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, saw this during his ministry. He saw this false gospel starting to take root in, in, in America and other parts of the world during World War II. And so Bonhoeffer, in his book called The Cost of Discipleship, wrote this, and it's, it's very prophetic, and it's amazing the foresight that he had, that God gave him. He says this, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. This is important for us to understand because outrageous joy can only be found by embracing the true gospel. The true gospel. Next, look back at the text with me in Philippians 3 and verse 3. Paul says, So we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, and we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ Jesus. Here's number two in your outline. Paul, again, wants to shoot down this false gospel of legalism that the Judaizers are spreading. And so he says here, in essence, working for your salvation will end in failure. Working for your salvation will end in failure. So Paul, he's beginning to dismantle the theology of these Jewish legalists by writing out his religious resume before he knew Christ. He personally knew firsthand the futility of trying to live for God in the flesh. 
And so if you look at the text in verse 4, here's what he's doing. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I, I have more. Hey. If, in other words, if anybody could try to earn their salvation, man, I could have done it. But here's the conclusion I came to, y'all, as though he had a Texas accent. He goes on to list his impressive religious and family credentials. Now, I'm going to explain them real quickly because I know to us here in the 21st century, you know, it doesn't, we don't understand some of the terms he's using or why it's important. So, so quickly, let me try to help you go back in a time machine and understand what he's getting at. First of all, he mentions his family or bloodline. This was a big deal in Jewish culture. He says, I was from the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. It meant that he came from one of the holiest, most respected families in Jewish history. And he could trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham. And not many people could do that in the first century. Now this is key because Judaizers were very proud of their family history and they loved to boast about it. So Paul, he, he, he like more than one-ups them, says, oh man, I was in the family. We were, I mean, you want to you see, a, a, you see a, a bloodline? You want to see Ancestry.com for me? I got you beat, okay? Next, he goes on to talk about his education. He says, I was a Pharisee. Paul spent years studying under one of the greatest rabbis that ever lived, a man named Gamaliel, and he reached the pinnacle of his religious education by earning the title and status of Pharisee. It meant that he was an expert in the Old Testament law. Next, he was an activist. He, so he, Paul not only uh, was totally died in the world Jewish, but he also applied, although sinfully, and blindly, he applied his faith by persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. You might remember that before Paul came to faith in Christ, he violently opposed the gospel by incarcerating and killing Christians. His life before Christ is chronicled in the first eight or nine chapters of the book of Acts. And so before Christ, Paul looked like a religious success story. That's what he's trying to tell the Philippians and tell the Judaizers. But even Paul came to realize that no amount of religious effort could save him from an eternity in hell paying for the consequences of his sin. Bishop John Taylor Smith was a bishop for the Church of England in the late 19th century. He served as chaplain for the British Army in World War I. Now, back in the 19th century, uh, the, the, the Church of England was sort of split. There, there, it, was, it was very similar to the Catholic Church, very hierarchical, and uh, there were separatists, which is a good term in this sense, who were breaking away and calling members of the Church of England to come back to the preaching of the Word and the Gospel. But there were a couple of guys who were staying in the church trying to help save it. And uh, Bishop John Taylor Smith, I think, was one, and then one of my favorite authors, J.C. Ryle, was the other. Uh, Smith, on one particular day, went to the barber shop to get a fresh shave. 
when he decided to bring up the salvation or topic of salvation to his barber. The barber snapped at him, kind of shutting down the discussion right away. I do my best, and that's enough for me. Of course, the guy had a blade in his hand, so you, know, you don't want to push the argument too far. So Smith remained quiet until the shave was over, which was probably wise. After he got out of the chair and the next customer was seated, the bishop asked the barber, May I shave your next customer? And the barber replied, No, you mustn't. But I will do my best, said the bishop. To which the barber responded, So you might, but your best would not be good enough for this gentleman. And then the wise old bishop, he knew he had the barber caught. He said back to him, No, and neither is your best good enough for God. Outrageous joy can only be found in him by embracing the true gospel so that you can rejoice in the Lord. Look back at the text with me as we read verses 8 through 11. Paul continues to encourage and instruct the, the Philippians. He, he says in verse uh, 8, uh, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here's the third and final truth that uh, Paul is trying to convey to us and the Philippians, and that is that surrendering everything to Jesus is worth it. Surrendering everything to Jesus is worth it. Again, keep in mind, this is Paul. He's in Rome under house arrest, handcuffed to an elite special forces prisoner. He's, he's going on trial for being obedient to God, preaching the gospel. He's had friends leave him, desert him. He's been betrayed by people. He has, he has false teachers that are out there trying to undermine the preaching that he's done of the true gospel. And yet, he says, in essence, and I'm paraphrasing here, still, surrendering everything to Christ is worth it. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. This is in the original language he uses accounting terms. You see them there in your Bible. I count, it's a financial term in the Greek text, loss, gain. He's using accounting, tax preparer terms here. Why did he say this, though? Well, because Paul, after Paul came to faith in Christ, he realized how pointless all the things that he had gained in the flesh really were. Striving for religious perfection, fame, and worldly pleasures left him entirely unsatisfied. 
It wasn't worth it to him. But knowing Christ was surpassing in worth to him because he knew that Jesus, only Jesus, could satisfy his soul and do more with his life than he ever could. As if he wasn't clear enough, Paul takes his point to another level. In verse 8, I count them as rubbish. All those things that I did in my previous life, I count them as rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You've heard me say before, there's nothing worth looking back on in your previous life before you knew Christ. So don't ever wish to go back there. Don't ever look back and think, oh man, those were the good old days. Because Paul says, they weren't for me. I count them all as loss. In fact, I count them all as rubbish. The word he uses in the original language is a fascinating word. It's the Greek word skubala, which means dog dung or garbage. Depending on your Bible translation, you might see either of these words for it. Uh, a modern translation of this word, I think, would simply be poo. I consider everything I did before I knew Jesus, all the effort, all the, the attempts I made to try and earn my salvation, to be perfect, to be religious, to get all the things I want in the world, poo, compared to knowing Christ. What's also interesting is that <laughs> poo is something that even the dogs don't eat. So Paul goes on to say, I, he seems to be using this word, I think, for shock value. Because he's trying to help his readers understand that compared to having Christ, everything that he had accomplished in the world was poo to him. And he already knew what a godly man told me years ago, which is this. Only three things last forever. God, his word, and the souls of men. Only three things last forever. God, his word, and the souls of men. And Paul learned that. And as a result, he rearranged his life around those priorities, just as we should. Now, that doesn't mean we are all called to full-time vocational ministry. You can, you can have your life rearranged around the priorities of God, his word, and the souls of men and work in the marketplace. The Lord needs people in the marketplace with that mindset. But he's showing us, don't ever look back on your previous life and think you had it better then and suffering for Christ, and leaving it all on the table for Christ, is absolutely worth it. Now, in case you are wondering, why should we seek to know Christ more intimately? Well, here in verses 8, 9, and 10, I'll rattle these off real quick for you. Notice he references the knowledge of Christ. In verse 8, he says, I... I, I love knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It means that, among other things, he gained a better understanding of who God is by knowing Christ. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to understand better how God works and thinks? Well, knowing Jesus makes that possible. Next, Paul gained the righteousness of Christ. He says in verse 9, not having righteousness of my own, because remember, he was trying to earn his righteousness before Jesus as a Pharisee. 
Instead, though, when he came to know Christ as a Savior, Paul received the righteousness of Christ, burden lifted. He no longer had to earn his salvation. Through Christ, Paul gained, and we can too, the righteousness he spent years trying to attain on his own as a Pharisee. This means he was no longer a slave to sin, which leads to less failure, less shame, less guilt for the rest of his life. He didn't say it was an easy life, but he did say, and I think, well, I think he's implying, it's an easier one not having to deal with the consequences of his sin and having the freedom to choose not to sin. Next, he says, I gained fellowship with Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him. The final thing that Paul got in verse 10 is that he got to experience the presence of Christ. This is a tremendous blessing because no matter how many people hurt Paul, betrayed Paul, uh, disappointed him, deserted him, the Lord's presence was still with him. And because the Lord is omnipresent, the Lord can meet with me at my house during my devotion time, and he can meet with you at your house during your devotion time, so we can simultaneously experience the Lord's presence together and be in two totally different locations. That's fellowship with Christ. And so the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus freed Paul up to say, as you've heard me already mention in this series, I don't care about my personal comfort or what happens to me so long as Jesus is glorified, God's word is proclaimed, and the gospel is spread. That freed him up to be joyful. So if Paul suffered financial loss, it didn't matter because his hope was not in financial security. He, re he was rejoicing in the Lord. If, if Paul came down with a major health problem and ended up on his back for months, it didn't bother Paul because he's like, my, my hope was not in that anyway, being healthy. I, I, my, my joy is in the Lord, knowing him. If people let him down and hurt him, it didn't matter. Paul's like, that's okay. I know what's in the heart of man. My joy is in the Lord, who never changes, who never fails me, and is always with me. So how do we apply these truths? Here's two applications that come to mind. The first is, know the true gospel. When people in the banking industry, such as bank tellers or, say, secret service agents who work in the uh, tracking down counterfeiters, when they receive counterfeit training, the first thing they are taught is how to uh, recognize an authentic U.S. dollar or U.S. currency down to the very fine details of what to look for. If you are a Christ follower, it is God's will that you know the gospel so well that you can share it at any time and measure everything else by it. 
You, you should, if you're a Christ follower, it is God's will that you be able to, to say, for example, uh, to anybody, any place, any time, uh, here's a summary of the gospel. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, and our sin separates us from God. This creates a problem. We can't have fellowship with God. While we have unrepentant sin, we've not dealt with. In John 3.16, God so loved the world so that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus is the solution to our sin problem. In Acts 3.19, Peter said, Repent and turn back to God so that your sins may be blotted out. So the key part of the gospel is leaving my sin, my self-centered, rebellious ways of wanting to be on my own and independent, and I don't care what God thinks, and I don't want to do God's will, leaving that and turning back to the Lord to follow him so I can have forgiveness and peace and please him and glorify him with my life. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from the consequences of your sin and from the bondage of your sin. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You have to nail, nail these things down if you're a Christ follower. You have to be ready, as Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, be prepared to give a defense for the hope that you have. Be prepared to share it. It also... In knowing the gospel, it allows you to hear a podcast or hear a sermon on the radio or to see one on TV and to be able to go, that's authentic, that's real. That is not. Chapter, verse, chapter, verse in the Bible, I know. You have to be able to nail down, I sinned, he died, he rose, I repented, believed, and followed. And as you've heard me say before, if you don't know God's word, you are going to be gullible and susceptible to being deceived. And it will be nobody else's fault but your own. Next, number two, be aware of common false gospels. Be aware of common false gospels. After bank tellers and secret service agents learn what authentic currency looks like, they are then trained on how to spot a counterfeit bill. They are educated on all the latest techniques and technology that, technology, excuse me, that are being used to create counterfeit currency. And of course, that technology evolves over the years, so agents are constantly having to keep getting trained as new uh, crafts and tricks come out that the you know, every time the industry comes up with a new security measure, the counterfeiters come up with a countermeasure to it. And so they're always going through training. If you're a Christ follower, it's God's will that you know how to spot false teaching. That's true. That's not. That's true. That's not. Some pastors specifically name false teachers who are out there for their congregations. Although I think there's a time and a place for that, I have intentionally chosen not to do it in this season. And I'll be honest with you and tell you why. It's because I don't want you going out into the community and saying, oh, Pastor Kerry says this guy's bad news. I shouldn't, we shouldn't listen to him. Did you hear? Yeah, my pastor says he's bad news. 
I don't want you saying, I said it. I want you to figure it out on your own. I want you to know God's word so well that you can discern a counterfeit without me having to tell you. I want you to be able to say, man, I only had to hear 60 seconds of that guy before my false teacher antennas went off. And because uh, he said X, but God's word says Y. And I know it says Y because chapter, verse, chapter, verse, chapter, verse. Why? Because I have spent years studying God's word faithfully, consistently in my devotions, in my small group, and I've gained a growing knowledge of the word. So I hear false teaching and go, ding, not true, turn the channel. Be on the lookout, as Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 2, look out, look out. Look out! Be on the lookout for false teachers who want to steal your joy. Well, you heard me introduce Bishop John Taylor Smith earlier. He was one of those rare prophets in the 19th century, like J.C. Ryle, that was trying to help the doctrinally drifting Church of England get back on track. As I was preparing this message, I stumbled upon another story about him. I usually don't like to reference an author or a pastor or person twice in a message, but um, I couldn't resist with this story about him. Uh, on one occasion, he was preaching from John chapter 3 in a large cathedral, and he really wanted to drive home what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You might remember, it's where Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Smith passionately proclaimed to the congregation as the guest preacher that day, my dear people, do not substitute anything for the new birth. You may be a member of a church, even a great church, such as this one, but church membership is not new birth. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, Smith wasn't done yet. He, I wish I could have been there. It would have been amazing to see. The associate minister of the church was sitting off to his right as Smith was preaching from the pulpit, and he points to the associate minister of that church and says, you might be a minister like my dear friend here and not be born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He continued then to call out church leaders in the congregation, pointing to them. You could be like him. You could be like him. Just like I might say, you know, you, you could be a usher team captain or a treasurer over the men's ministry or the women's ministry or on the worship team and not be born again. Unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, then Smith said, you might even be a bishop like myself and not born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, he finished his message and you know, closed in prayer. The service ended and not much happened after that. And 
A few days later, later though, excuse me, uh, Bishop John Taylor Smith received a letter in the mail. And it was a letter from the associate minister sitting to his right that he called out in front of the church. And here's, here's what the associate minister wrote to him. My dear bishop, you have found me out. I have been in ministry for over 30 years, but I have never known anything of the joy that Christians speak of. I never could understand it. My church experience has been hard legal service. I did not know what was the matter with me, but when you pointed directly to me during your sermon, I realized in a moment what the trouble was. I had never known anything of the new birth. The associate minister went on to say in his letter that he was a wretched sinner, miserable and unable to sleep, and begged for a meeting with the bishop. And so the bishop obliged. And they met the next day, read the scriptures together, and that associate minister trusted Christ as his Savior for the first time. And from that day forward, everything was different in his life. Because when somebody genuinely authentically repents of their sin and receives Christ as their Savior by grace and through faith alone. The Spirit comes in and takes up residence in their heart and begins to change them so they become a new creation, a different person. I was reminded by this bishop's letter that it doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are. It doesn't matter how much you go to church or how little. It doesn't matter whether your parents are saved or not saved, whether your grandparents are saved or not saved. If you have not been born again, you'll spend your life trying to gain what you cannot earn, only to lose what Jesus has already offered to you. Outrageous joy can only come and only be found by embracing the true gospel. Would you join me as we close in prayer? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, it has haunted me for years as I have studied the scriptures to see just how depraved humans are. How, how our depravity deceives us. It, it's haunting and scary to think that it is possible for someone to go through the motions of being a Christ follower, looking like a Christ follower, doing all the activities, and yet not be born again. What a tragedy. Lord, it's just scary and saddening and breaks my heart to know there are, there are children that grow up in Christian homes. There are smart people that 
come to church and go to Bible study. They have all the answers to the right questions. But they can still not be born again. Lord, if that is the case for anyone here today or in our church or maybe listening online, please, Lord, would you, by your Spirit, open their eyes and help them to see that they need a relationship with you. Lord, would you do for them what you did for me years ago when I was in college? Where, similar to Paul, it was like the scales fell off my eyes, a light switch went on, and I got it. I understood that I was a sinner, that I needed to be saved from my sin and from the consequences of my sin, and that I had been searching for years for a relationship with you. And all it took was for somebody to explain to me how to have that. I didn't even know what I wanted, what I was looking for. Thank you, Lord, for that precious day, my freshman year in college, where I trusted in you alone for my salvation. I thank you, Lord, that I have never been the same since. Father, please, would you do that for anyone here today that has not experienced you? Father, I also want to pray for those who are saved, but they need to grow in their discernment, just as Paul prayed for the Philippians in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Please, Lord, get their attention, wake them up, do whatever it takes, cut off their satellite TV or their Wi-Fi, whatever it takes so that they would get into your word and be able to know the difference between the true gospel and the false gospels that are out there so they would not be deceived. And Father, finally, I want to pray for those who are not saved yet. For those who dread coming to church, who scoff at the name of Jesus, who don't consider anything spiritual worth giving time to, please, Lord, would you show them their mortality? Would you awaken them and show them they have not been promised tomorrow? In a matter of minutes, or, or maybe tomorrow, or in just a few days, they, Lord, we know, could be standing before you, having to give an account for their life. Please, Lord, help them to see this. And reveal Jesus to them. How much you love them and want a relationship with them. So they, too, might be saved. Saved from spending eternity in hell, pain for their sin. We love you, Lord. We cannot express it enough. Thank you for loving us while we are still yet sinners. Thank you, Lord, for being patient with us, slow to anger and abounding in love, as the psalmist writes. Please, Lord, accept our worship as we respond to what we've heard in the word today by singing back to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.